Good morning, church. Hey, my name is Doug, one of your pastors, and it's a joy to be able to open God's word with you and just to, to worship our God with you this morning. Uh, want to first wish all the fathers out there a happy Father's Day. Um, and I, I know for many of us, um, Father's Day is a day that comes with a variety of emotions, right? Very similar to, to Mother's Day, where there are um, many of us who are right now experiencing joy and, and maybe pride in our role as fathers, or as we think about our father's role in our lives. We also recognize that there are some among, of us, among us here this morning whose feelings, when they think of Father's Day, um, maybe they have a different sort of reaction. Uh, maybe there's grief or sadness of a lost one, or maybe a hope of a father who didn't um, quite love them as maybe they needed or wanted to. Um, kind of wherever you are, um, where Father's Day is concerned, our hope and prayer is that, um, that this morning, um, what would... Father's Day would cause us to think of the great and ultimate Father um, who opens his arms up to every single one of us and invites us into his family. Um, and that we'd be able to draw our attention and our hope would be renewed and restored as we think about how gracious our Heavenly Father is towards us. And so to do that, um, we've already been doing a little bit of that this morning, um, but to continue doing that, I would invite you to open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Um, we are continuing on in our series through the Ten Commandments, Words to Live By. And this morning, we're going to look specifically at uh, the second commandment, the second word, if you will. And it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. And I would encourage you to um, bring a Bible with you when you come to church. And if you don't, there are some back there at the welcome at the Connect counter. You can grab one, and it would be just our gift to you. Um, pull out your phones, but you will, be, it, you will be helped this morning if you have a copy of God's Word with you um, open as we go. So I'm going to read Deuteronomy 5, 8 through 10. Uh, I know you're just getting comfortable, but I would invite you, if you are able, to stand as I read God's Word, okay? This is a way of just honoring and respecting His, His Word. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, as we stand here this morning um, and consider your word and hear and listen to your word, Father, Lord, I just thank you first and foremost that you are a God who speaks to us, Lord, and uh, Lord, I pray that you would do just that right now, that you would use your word um, to shape us in the into the people that you have called us to be. Lord, that you would give us a heart and a desire, a longing to be with you, to know you, to serve you, and to worship you, Lord. And that this morning would help us to do just that. So would you take your word right now, which we believe to be eternal and true, and we ask that you would write it on our hearts. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Well, 
this seems like a safe place from what I can tell. I'll be a little vulnerable with you this morning. I'm going to say something that might shock you, okay? So be ready. I love barbecue. I just love barbecue, okay? I don't know if you can relate or identify. Maybe, and I'm not hating on anybody who might be a vegetarian or whatever. It's, that's fine. I personally feel like you're missing out, okay? But I love barbecue. I love everything about barbecue. I love to eat barbecue, okay? I also love to barbecue. I do not have a fancy grill necessarily or a lot of accessories that go along with barbecue. I mean, you can just really sort of, you know, get carried away, if you will, where barbecue is concerned. But I just love the whole process about barbecuing, you know, getting the, firing the grill up, getting the, the temperature set just right, preparing the meat, getting a rub put together, making your own sauce, just everything that goes into barbecuing, I absolutely love. In fact, I love one of my favorite things to barbecue is ribs. Just love, love barbecuing ribs, okay? It's something over the years that I have just worked on and tried to sort of, I wouldn't say master, but I, I just enjoy barbecuing ribs, okay? Um, it may shock you to find out this morning that there is another way to eat ribs. Again, prepare yourself. There is such a thing as baked ribs. Maybe some of us have indulged or perhaps practiced um, that in the past, baking ribs in the oven. Um, I would say uh, it's the wrong way to eat ribs, okay? If that's your, your understanding of how the rib is prepared, you are missing out, okay? In my estimation, there's really only one way to cook ribs. It's to smoke them. Just one way. One way to cook ribs. Now, you're wondering, is this just a Father's Day illustration? Is he actually going to make a connection? I'm going to try. It might be a stretch. See if you can stay with me. As we saw from uh, Pastor Hoke, Pastor Thomas, last week, the first commandment, as we looked at it, teaches us that we are to honor God by loving him with our whole self. Our relationship with God is supposed to be exclusive, comprehensive, and covenantal. And the first commandment calls us to worship God for who he is, the one true living God. The first commandment is focused primarily on who we worship. The second commandment this morning, as we turn our attention to the second commandment, what comes to the surface is not necessarily, yes, it's related to the first commandment, clearly, but the second commandment is primarily focused on how we worship God. I love ribs. It's true. But there is a wrong way to cook your ribs. It's the truth. It's the truth. Likewise, if you're here this morning and you love God, the Bible is very, very clear. And it really is the point of this message in this text is that there is a right way to worship him. There's a right way to, there are so many wrong ways to worship God, but there is a right way. So what the second commandment ultimately is about is that how, what God is telling us in this commandment is that how we worship him actually matters. It matters. 
The first commandment is a prohibition against worshiping the wrong God. The second commandment is a prohibition against worshiping God the wrong way. So, to make this point this morning from the text, we'll have three points. The first we'll consider together is, basically it'll be the what, the why, and the how. What is the commandment saying? Why is God saying that? And how are we as a people supposed to obey and follow this? What, why, and how? First up is the what. And again, you'll, you'll be helped this morning if you've got your Bible open. What does the commandment, what does the second commandment say? Well, you see it right there in verses 8 and the first part of verse 9. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. The what of the commandment is found here in, these first, in this first verse and a half. What the commandment is really saying may not be what you think. Let's just first start by saying that. It may sound like God here, as we read the text, that God is perhaps forbidding artwork of any kind. God is perhaps, is it suggesting that God is anti-art? I hope not. Well, it's not saying that at all. Clearly not the case. As you read on throughout the Bible, you'll see that God actually, throughout Scripture, will commission art. He commissions artwork throughout his tabernacle. One of the great examples of this is the mercy seat, which symbolizes his covenant presence with his people. And there on either side of the mercy seat are winged cherubim that he commissioned to be made. So the commandment is not saying that God is the God of, is is anti-artistic expression, okay? So praise God for that. Not what it's saying. What the commandment is saying, however, is that God is not to be pictured. Not to be, the God of the Bible, the one true God, Yahweh himself, is not to be pictured. Not to be visually represented. Now if you were to flip back to chapter 4, in verse 15, you'll see that it says this. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire. The point in Moses saying this, they they watched themselves carefully. Why? Because they saw no form on the day that God spoke to them out of the midst of the fire. The point is, you didn't see God at Mount Horeb. When he revealed himself to you, so do not make an image out of him now. When he revealed himself to you then, he didn't show his face. So don't make an image out of him right now. Following the God of the Bible was was going to be giving yourself to a faith that was to remain imageless. Worshiping images of other gods is certainly not permitted by God. But that comes primarily as an implication of the first commandment, of what we saw last week. Remember, your relationship with God is to be exclusive. Don't give yourself to idols, to false gods, to cheap imitations. The second commandment, however, prohibits images, not of other gods. And this is one where maybe you have to read it a couple of times because it is a, it is a common misunderstanding. The second commandment prohibits images, not necessarily of other gods, but images of the one true God. The, the, the God of the Bible is not to be image. You're not to construct and fashion for yourself an image 
that represents God. Consider the story of the golden calf. Many of us, if you have much familiarity with the Bible or if you've been around church much, you, you likely know the story of the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. Moses is up on the top of Mount Sinai and, and the people are beginning to grow restless. Where did he go? When is he going to come back? Did he just get consumed on the top of Mount Sinai? So the people demanded that Aaron make for them gods that will go before them. Aaron agrees. He takes the gold and, and jewelry from the people and he fashions the gold and jewelry together and, and comes up with a golden calf. And they declared, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Israelites were not attempting to worship a foreign god. Rather, the Israelites, in crafting the golden calf, were attempting to worship their God. But they were doing it the wrong way. They were doing it the wrong way. The, the, the calf was to represent their God who brought them out of Egypt. They wanted a, a visual representation of who this God was so that they could bow down and worship their God. And that's what the calf represented. Or if you were to flip the other direction in Deuteronomy and go to chapter 12, you'll see in verse 29 through 31, God's word says this, When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess. Remember, God's people are at the land of Moab, about to cross over the Jordan and head into the promised land. <clears throat> so these words are preparing them for what, is about to, what they're about to encounter. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you are not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same. Look at verse 31. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. So of course they were not to cross over into the promised land and start claiming the gods of that land as their own. But they were also, what God is specifically saying to them here in chapter 12, is that you're not to go over there and learn from their practices and how they worship their gods and how they craft them and make images. And you are not to follow their pattern by worshiping me, taking an image and try to fashion it to make it look like me. Don't be ensnared. Don't grow curious or, or fascinated by their way of worshiping. Don't grow jealous of the fact that they have statues that represent their God. Don't look at the altars and the statues and the idols and think how they serve their gods. Maybe we should worship our God just like that. He says, no, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. So in summary, what is the second commandment saying? In the second commandment, God is forbidding us from worshiping him as we choose rather than how he clearly says we are to worship him in his word. That's what the second commandment is all about. Now, why? Why make such a big deal about this God? I mean, really, number two? I don't know if you guys are familiar with Sam Harris. Sam Harris is a contemporary critic of religion and leading figure in the new atheist movement and has famously sort of made a mockery of the Ten Commandments. It's really quite sad. 
And speaking specifically of the second commandment, this is what Sam Harris says. He says, is this really the pinnacle of, we can ach- of what we can achieve morally? I mean, seriously. This is, this is what Sam Harris is thinking. Seriously. Number two, don't make an image of God? Is that really what God is sort of obsessed with? Isn't there other more significant things that could be slotted into that place? More serious things against maybe God or humanity that that maybe would rise up to number two? But why that? Why does God care so much about this? Why? Why? What's the why behind this commandment? We'll look at it sort of in two different lenses. The first is, we'll consider why does God care? And the second move we'll make is, we'll think about why should we care? There are so many reasons why this is important to God. I'm just going to give you three. Three three reasons why this is such a big deal to God. And each is ultimately rooted in specific aspects of who God is, his nature, his character. The first two will be drawn sort of from around the text, and the last one will be the most obvious one stated clearly in the text. Okay, so three reasons why God cares. The first is because God is a speaking God. He's a speaking God. Why does God care that we don't make images of him? Because God is a speaking God. Consider again chapter 4 verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. God is a God who cannot be seen, but but whose voice can't be missed. And when he chooses to reveal himself to his people, how does God choose to do that? He chooses to speak through his word. God is a speaking God who discloses himself primarily through his word. And it is through his word... That he not only reveals himself, but it's also through his word that he makes promises, that he offers us hope and provides direction, comforts us, confronts us, challenges us. And any attempt to turn God into a voiceless statue is an attempt to gag the voice of God himself. Moses will show later that Canaanite idolatry had done nothing to establish a just and caring society in the land. If you were to go back to chapter 12 and just finish off reading the section that I had read just previously, where he says, you shall not worship the Lord your God that way, listen to the following sentence. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Look at what kind of society idolatry had created. Idolatry had produced a society where injustice and cruelty flourished. Because the voiceless idols were unable to speak against the human proclivity to oppression and violence. But the God of the Bible is not like that. The God of the Bible is a liberating God, is a a God who, who brought his people out of freedom. He's a God who works justice and who shows and loves mercy. And his word says so. It's it's not coincidental that in the Old Testament, if you read through the prophets, that two of the major themes that the prophets are constantly speaking against as the voice of God is that of idolatry and social injustice. It's it's not coincidental. 
So, so these cultures who've, who've it's just a, a, a progression. First they make an idol, then they bow down to the idol, then they start serving the idol, and before you know it, they're not listening at all to what God is saying. But God, the God of the Bible, is a speaking God. He's a speaking God. And so crafting an image is kicking against his very nature. Secondly, we know that God is an incomparable God. Why does God care so much about making images of him? Because God is an incomparable God. As stated in the first commandment, there are to be no other gods before our God. There are no other gods who can compare at all with God. A statue of God can do nothing Nothing compared to a God who can do absolutely everything and anything he wants. There's, there's no visible representation of God that can even come close. So he's saying, don't even try. Don't even attempt. Think of Isaiah 40. Who, as we consider this incomparable God, who has measured the waters the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a, a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. To whom then will you like, will be like God? Or what likeness compare him with? An idol? Think of the golden calf that we just talked about. It's an obvious example. Jen Wilkin is really helpful here in the book that, that Brother Thomas mentioned last week. The image of the, of the calf simply cannot compare to God. The, the, the calf is small. God is immense. It is inanimate. God is spirit. It is created. God is uncreated. It is impotent. God is omnipotent. Because the image of the calf cannot compare to God... The image lies to us about who God is. It, it, it lies to us. It gets us thinking that God is not as great, not as grand, not as authoritative as he truly is. It tells us lies about who God is. Try as we might, we cannot come up with anything that can come close to who God is. God's a speaking God. He's an incomparable God. And finally, the one that the text just says plainly is that God is a jealous God. Why should you not make any images of God? Because he is a jealous God. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. At first blush, for many of us, this idea of God being a jealous God may seem odd. What's going on here? Is God struggling with some insecurity? Is that what's happening here? Not at all. His jealousy for us is a function of what we talked about last week of his covenantal commitment with us. We considered the first commandment last week and, and looked at the context of, the, of a covenant and how God has established that with his people. His jealousy ultimately is rooted in that covenant. He commits himself exclusively to his people and expects our exclusive loyalty to him in return. Much like in a marriage, a relationship, another relationship that most of us are familiar with that rooted also in a covenant, a covenant of love. The exclusion of rivals, if you just consider the context of a marriage, the exclusion of rivals is a perfectly appropriate exclusion to make, right? In the context of a marriage. 
This feature of God's love is one that we see over and over again throughout the Bible. In fact, in Exodus 34, 14, God actually refers to himself as the jealous God. It's, his, it's the title. It's his name. And for many modern people, this is a tough pill for some of us to swallow in our pluralistic age. The exclusivity of a jealous God for some of us just does not align. So, so many of us want to reject or tempted to reject this notion. But just consider, if that's you, if you find yourself maybe kicking against the notion of a jealous God, just consider for a second how reassuring this idea should be for us, for God's people. His jealousy for us guards his relationship with us. Our relationship with God only really means something if God is completely and totally committed to us. A God who promises never to leave us nor forsake us, who ultimately wants the same for us. It should reassure us that, that God wants our love and our commitment, our faithfulness and our loyalty. He wants our hearts so much he's jealous. It's quite amazing. So that's why, three reasons why it's a big deal to God. Why God cares. Why, why God put it as a second commandment. Why should we care? What difference does it make to us? Well, the text provides us with a couple of different reasons why the second commandment should matter to us, why it makes a difference, why we should care. The first comes to us as word of a, a, a warning. You see it if you look down in verse 9. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. This as you look at it, it may seem odd. Well, if God is so jealous for us and so loving for us, this, this may stand out as sort of, sort of odd, out of place maybe. This is not, before we consider what it is saying, let's consider what it's not saying. It's not a generational curse, okay? Nor does it suggest that a righteous God would, would allow a child to be punished for the sins of their father. Too bad, kid, for example, your dad didn't cut it, so neither will you. That's, that's not, in fact, many of us are here this morning um, in spite of our parents' lack of faith. The, the fact that many of us are here this morning is testament to the fact that God opens up his arms and every single one of us, if we, if we repent of our sins, turn to him and embrace the life that he offers, have the newness of life in us. So he's not saying, if your parents didn't follow Jesus, you missed your opportunity, you missed your chance. Rather, if you look carefully at the verse, you'll see that God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth children of those who hate him. This judgment is for those who continue on in the ways of their fathers, having rejected God. They too reject God. This jealous God will not tolerate unfaithfulness. If a child grew up in an environment where God is not honored, not worshipped, but is rather rejected, it is highly likely that that child will repeat the exact same thing. Though we know that there's plenty of exceptions, many in this room will see exceptions throughout the Bible. They will be judged, rather, for their own sins, not the sins of their parents. So again, what, as we think about what we just witnessed here on the stage, what a beautiful expression of parents understanding the importance, 
the importance and the necessity to not just demonstrate and model a life of faith for their children, but to also commit to opening up God's word, letting God speak for himself, demonstrating how it's gripped their own hearts, transformed their own lives, bending down on their knees day after day after day, crying out that the Lord would rescue their children from their sin that he would give them the new life that they have received. And what an awesome expression that we as a church would stand in solidarity with them, in unity with them, and say, this isn't just on you, right? But we're in this together. We are a church, a people, covenanting together for the sake of the future generations. Folks, what just happened on the stage is a beautiful expression of what it means to be the church. If you've lived this life more than a day, you know that there is no telling what tomorrow holds. Temptations, suffering, struggle, and challenge has has the ability, if we're not careful and together, to knock us down. If you are a parent here and you've parented kids, maybe for a number of years, you've seen the significant challenge that comes with this. What a beautiful thing for us as a church to be able to say to the parents on this stage, you are not alone. And one thing I just want to ask to tuck in your heart is to consider that those weren't just words that we said together as a church, but to ask yourself, okay, if I really want to, if I really meant what I said, What will look different in my life this week? If I really believe that the the spiritual responsibility of the young children on this stage doesn't just rest on the shoulders of mom and dad, if I really believe that, what will look different in my life? Let me just give you a suggestion. I don't know if you caught any of the names that were set up here of the families, the kids. Write them down. Commit to praying for these families praying for these young people that this is precisely that this that that God's faith that the faith of of our Christianity and Jesus Christ would pass down from one generation to the next and this gets it kind of getting ahead of myself just a tad but this gets into the, the second reason why we ought to care so along with the warning the text also provides for us a wonderful promise A wonderful promise. Look again down at the Bible. It says, But showing steadfast love to thousands who love me and who keep my commandments. Steadfast love. This this is a theme. This has said the word throughout the Old Testament, time and time again. It's an incredibly important word used throughout the Bible. A word used to to capture God's unfailing, persistent, and pursuing love. God is faithful and will remain true to his people. God covenanted with his people, not so that he could punish them, but so that he might show them the fullness of his love for them, which is seen most ultimately in his son, Jesus Christ. He visits, in the, the warning, he says he visits three or four generations with his, with his punishment. And that's largely due to the fact that in, in that day it would have been very common to have multiple generations living together. But notice, when he visits, he visits thousands with his steadfast love. Three to four generations with his judgment. 
but thousands of generations with his steadfast love. What a mighty God. What an awesome God. This, this promise is for those who, who love God, we're told, and who keep his commandments. This is a picture ultimately of what these, the families that were standing on the stage just a few minutes ago are praying for this, these kids. That God would take their faith and would pass it down, that they would, their children would understand this unfailing, steadfast love of God. So it's, it's, a, it's a commandment, it's a second commandment for a reason. God cares. We should care too. Finally, how can we obey? How can we obey? I want to give you three maybe specific applications. The first would be if you're here this morning and you're, you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're here with family or friends or uh, maybe just were curious and maybe you've been leaning in around here for some time but wouldn't identify as a Christian. First, I want to say I'm so glad that you're here this morning. I'm so glad. Just it's, it's a bold move to walk into a place where maybe you're not totally comfortable or you don't totally agree with what's being taught. I'm so glad that you're here. The emphasis on the second commandment, as we've seen, is that God, the one true God, wants to be worshipped rightly. He cannot be worshipped rightly unless we worship him the way that he has appointed. There's something, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, there's something that's very important for you to hear. You cannot worship the true God unless you come to him through his son, Jesus Christ. The first thing, if you have an aspiration of, of pleasing the Lord with your worship, with all of your life, the first thing you need to do in order to obey the second commandment is to bow a knee to King Jesus. Accept him as your Lord and Savior. The author of Hebrews begins his letter by stating, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus himself, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Christ, Jesus Christ, has uniquely fulfilled the second commandment. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint, the exact image of his nature. Jesus didn't, did the seemingly impossible. He made the invisible God visible. We don't need statues. We don't need images. We don't need golden calves or icons. We have been given Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. And if you have a longing to see God in his glory, you open up this word, you stare at the pages, and you read, and, and the Holy Spirit will reveal to you the image of God himself in his son, Jesus Christ. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, again, I'm so glad you're here. Your first step in obeying the second commandment is bowing a knee to Jesus. For those of us who are followers of Jesus currently, two quick practical applications. The first I want you to do, first thing I want you to do is to consider how you worship. Consider how you worship. Think about how much time and effort you think about worship. 
Just consider for a second. How much time did you just take today, for example? How much time, and I'm not trying to guilt or shame anybody, but I just, let's just be real. How much time did you prepare in coming for church to church this morning? How much time did you prepare to be in worship this morning? You know, COVID taught the church in the West how easy it is to take our weekly gathering for granted. Some have established since then new rhythms, new habits, new practices. Some have maybe even reimagined how they worship. See, today, we worship, how we worship God is extremely important to God, and it should be to us. God has clearly communicated through his word how we are to worship him. Let's be the type of church that worships him as he wants to be worshipped, not how we necessarily want to worship him, okay? If you think about, think about you know, the team up here leading worship, and Will has just been doing a fantastic job of leading us in worship, but Will's primary job is not to get up on stage and to be cute and clever, okay? I don't know if that, not in his job description, okay? Will is doing a fantastic job, and what he's primarily focusing on is helping us be a church who worships faithfully to how God has called us to worship, right? Not necessarily cute and clever, but right. Prioritizing the things that God clearly says in his word ought to be prioritized in worship. And as we as, as Christians step into worship, we ought to think, I mean, uh, Pastor Thomas does a fantastic job preparing in afterwards for us to, to leave here. How do we reflect on what we learned and how do we discuss and grow and apply in our lives what we learned and experienced on Sunday mornings? In advance of that, your weekly email communicates, hey, this is what we're talking about. This is what passage we're reading from scripture. Trying to prepare you so that you can give time and energy as you walk in these doors, that your heart is right, that you're ready to to exalt God in his glory and to receive what God has for you. How much time and effort do you consider how you worship? I tell you what, it's a big deal to God and it ought to be to us. Finally, I want you to consider how you relate to God's image. This one may seem a bit odd. One of my favorite passages to teach at Faith Academy is Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 to 27. We're told that God made us in his image. This is the amazing thing. This is the pinnacle of creation narrative. That God took his image and put it in us as people. This is amazing. And it brings tremendous, tremendous understanding into how we view one another and how we view ourselves. And it's, it's a wonderful joy to be able to open up the Bible and teach this to young people. Can you believe God thinks this much of you? That he would put his image in you. This is amazing. It's a beautiful truth. We are his divinely chosen image bearers, made in his image and likeness, designed to show what God is like. The implications are simply unending. Idolatry is a disrespect to God. It, it diminishes God but it's also a disrespect and a diminishing to us. We mentioned earlier how throughout the Old Testament, the mistreatment of people and the worshiping of idols are constant recurrences that the prophets are always constantly calling out God's people for. It's not coincidental. They both share the same root. They're both ultimately a violation of God's image. 
In one case, Kevin DeYoung is helpful here. He says, in one case, we are looking for God's image where it doesn't exist. It's ultimately what we're doing with idolatry. And in the other case, we are ignoring God's image where it does exist as we sin against our neighbor. We are God's ambassadors and he has placed his image in us and taking us sort of as his living statues, representations of who he is and scattered us throughout the world for one purpose and one purpose alone, to bring glory to God, to bring glory to God in all that we do and all that we say. And so consider how you relate to God's image. How do you view yourself? Do you view yourself in this way? How do you view your neighbor? Do you view your neighbor in this way? Tremendous implications for all of us. So church, in closing, I invite you to stand and I'm gonna pray for us before we go. Actually, there's gonna be a song here, but you can stand up and I'll pray. Don't leave yet. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much as we just consider um, your word that you have spoken to us. Lord, how you have um, called us to be your people and spoken very clearly to us what you expect from us as we think specifically about your um, desire to help us be worshipers who worship you and approach you rightly, Lord. I pray that you would help us do just that. Lord, help us to examine our own hearts and our lives and to be able to see how we can naturally take steps of obedience to follow you in all of our life. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.